Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Tuesday, November 8th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm joined today by Diaspora and Religions reporter Judah Ari Gross and real estate editor Danielle Nagler. Hello, good morning to you both. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Jessica. Good morning. Hi. So we have Prime Minister-elect Benjamin Netanyahu meeting with coalition members and receiving calls of congratulations from world leaders. In the meantime, today we'll discuss what Israel diaspora ties look like post-election, as well as housing plans with the new government. We'll also talk about expectations for religion policies and what's happening with the hotel industry here in Israel. First, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. We're back. Judah, let's get started with Israel diaspora ties and what that could look like going forward. What is the word from the Jewish diaspora a week after Election Day? Uh, I think we're starting to see a pretty clear divide when it comes to diaspora Jewish organizations. U.S. Jewry also is not, not everyone's the same, but you're still talking about about three quarters of them vote Democrat. Um, you're talking, generally speaking, fairly liberal on these things. And so there with with that group, as opposed to a, a right to, you know, in some cases, far right Israeli government, everyone is projecting a degree of friction and tension going forward. Uh, in terms of the relationship between Israel and diaspora Jewry. And then there's also diaspora Jews, whether by inclination or by specific requests, often act as advocates for the Israeli government. And they're gonna have a bit of a harder time making that case to Democrats, to people who are more, you know, not only, but also to, to, you know, but especially to Democrats and more liberal Americans. Talking about Israel as being this place that's very welcoming when it comes to LGBT rights becomes a little bit more difficult when there's, you know, an explicitly homophobic party that's potentially going to be a part of the government, or at least is going to vote along with this coalition. You know, there's going to be two likely ministers, Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bitsal Smotrich, who have both led protests against gay pride parades. That's already a topic that's coming up now, as well as more generally sort of LGBT rights, potentially, and in some cases, probably going to be scaled back under this government. These are sources of friction. There's also both Bitsal Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir are very much on board, you know, are very much on the record saying things against Reform Judaism. A large percentage of American Jews identify with the Reform movement. 
including many of those who are, you know, high ranking officials in American Jewish organizations. So there's going to be some of the more sort of explicitly political Jewish organizations in the U.S., the Israel Policy Forum, you know, J Street is uh, a pretty clearly more liberal and and other, the reform movement who are going to be criticizing this government have already criticized expected members of this government. Um, and then you're going to see some of the larger sort of legacy establishment organizations like the Jewish Agency, um, like the Conference of Presidents, APAC, the American Jewish uh, Committee, um, where they're going to be uh, they're going to try to not be too critical. Um, at the same time, they're going to be facing calls to, you know, to be more critical on certain issues from their members, from their constituents. Um, and they're going to be in that position of trying to defer to Israel on issues of security, but obviously still having to deal with these issues um, specifically where it touches issues of religion and state and religious pluralism in Israel, which is uh, a, a major area of interest for American Jews in, in spe- you know, specifically. Obviously, we'll keep on following that. Uh, Danielle, what about housing? Will this new government tackle the untamed rental market as you uh, wrote about in a recent analysis? Well, I certainly hope so. The focus of the previous government was very much on building homes and trying to build their way out of house inflation by simply bringing more apartments and more apartments onto the market so that the price would drop. Uh, They did probably achieve more building than we've seen in recent years, but the, the pressure on the housing market, the need for housing is so great that it's absolutely impossible to build enough houses to keep house prices steady that way. And what we see instead is that as house prices rise, fewer people are able to afford to buy a house and therefore they need to rent. But also it's more expensive to buy an investment property, especially of course, if you're buying with foreign currency because of the strength of the shekel. And so we're not seeing a growth in the number of apartments available to rent, even though we have more and more people, probably around now 30%, 32% of the population rent, and they are desperately looking for an affordable rental and for a landlord who plays by the game, because the rental market in Israel is very, very unregulated. There was an attempt in 2017 to bring in a fair rental law that was led by Stav Shafir, who'd led the rental protests in 2011. Uh, But the law is more honoured in the breach than the observance. Uh, There's very little enforcement. Amongst other things, it tried to introduce a fair rental contract. Places like Tel Aviv have a fair rental contract. Any any renter can download it. Any landlord can download it. But landlords prefer and know that they can get away with their own contract, which puts more obligations on the tenants and fewer obligations on them. So what we really need is a tough framework for the rental market, a standardized contract which people have to use, which divides up responsibilities, puts a fair timeline in for increasing rent, perhaps over a three-year period by just the rate of inflation so that there are no nasty surprises for people, and also which protects people's deposits. At the moment, you pay three months rental up front, and that goes straight into the landlord's bank account, who then spends it, and when the time comes to end this tenancy, is very reluctant to give back that money. Uh, We're also seeing landlords try to bump 
costs onto tenants, for example, the cost of an agent in renting out the property. It's not a tenant cost. It should be a landlord cost. I don't know whether this government will be brave enough to tackle that. Who's out there who you see as someone who's going to be a voice for the rental market? That's the difficulty. There is no united voice. We have around 13% of Israelis own a second property. So around 13% of Israelis are landlords. And the renters do not speak with a unified voice. We may see areas like Tel Aviv, which are very focused on managing the population and maintaining a mixed population, go their own way on this and try to bring in rules on a municipality basis. But really, these issues penetrate every part of Israel and Israel's housing market, and particularly for young religious couples or young non-religious couples who are looking to start out in a home of their own. It's just as important, more important, I would say, to fix the rental market as to fix the purchase market. All right. Thanks for that, Danielle. We'll keep on following that story, obviously. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, Judah will talk to us about this new government that is primarily made up of religious parties. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like, my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their, like, blankie their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we're back. Judah, you have been looking at religion and state issues, obviously, even before the election, but now very much so. There are calls, as you mentioned beforehand, to roll back LGBTQ uh, progress that's been made, questions about the shift of, of privatization of the kosher certification process. Give us a sense of what the experts are saying, what we may expect to see with the new government. Yeah, so uh, as you said, of this uh, 64 seat, you know, expected coalition, maybe 63, depending on how things play out, but, you know, 64, 63 seat coalition, um, 33 of those are currently in the hands of either the um, religious Zionist party, the ultra-Orthodox United Torah Judaism, or the ultra-Orthodox Shas party. So this is, just in terms of the political parties, a majority religious uh, government. It's the first time that's ever happened in Israel's history. And then when you add to that, uh, there's a decent number of religious, you know, religious MKs from the Likud party, you have a very substantial majority. The Likud, Likud is also sort of pretty historically a traditional uh, party as it relates to religion state issues. There are some parts of the Likud party that are sort of more more liberal in the classic sense of the term um, in terms of sort of personal freedoms and things like that and, and more secular. There's also some uh, people from the former Soviet Union who have their own uh, sort of take on these on these issues. Um, but in general, you're we're 
very much expected to see um, some significant moves in terms of religion and state. Um, the main thing that we're going to see pretty early on, most likely, is not necessarily a total overturning, but uh, a pretty significant scaling back of the past kashrut reforms, which was supposed to, um, in part, sort of privatize kosher certifications and allow people besides the chief rabbinate to declare uh, a restaurant or a food business to be kosher. It's possible that some parts of that reform are going to stick around, but it's more likely that a lot of the enforcement and a lot of the other aspects of this is going to be scaled back, if not overturned uh, completely. Um, and then sort of more general, there's lots of issues that are going to be at play going forward. Um, but sort of the main things that a lot of the experts that I spoke to um, focused on was a strengthening of the chief rabbinate, um, you know, making sure that a lot of things that are already um, within the purview of the chief rabbinate are very much enshrined in law as part of the, the chief rabbinate so that the next time that, you know, somebody besides this type of religious government comes into power, it's going to be much more difficult for them to pass reforms, to change the system, to allow for, you know, other voices to be heard on religious issues. Um, so the strengthening of the chief rabbinate as it relates to marriage, conversions, divorce, um, that's something that's going to come up um, more and more as we go forward. Um, it's not necessarily going to be dramatic shifts, but it's going to be a strengthening to prevent, you know, reforms in the future. Um, another area is going to be uh, dealing with rabbinic courts. Rabbinic courts currently, um, except for issues of uh, marriage and divorce and a few other things, are, are by and large, you, you have to you have to sort of accept that the you have to go to the rabbinic courts for them to, um, you know, judge your case. Um, they've been looking to expand some of their powers in the past. It's come up. There's been proposed legislation before, um, and it's likely that there will be some expansion of uh, rabbinic courts powers, which has a lot of people who are, you know, more on the state than the religion in the religion state divide uh, concerned because those rabbinic courts do not necessarily play by the same rules as civil courts. Um, there's only, you know, in terms of rabbinic judges, there are only male rabbinic judges. Um, in general, women are not considered to have as much power in these types of proceedings as they do in civil courts. Um, so that's definitely something to watch. Um, and as I mentioned, a lot of the issues dealing with sort of LGBT rights and women's rights, um, a lot of that is going to depend on who gets what ministry. Um, because while there's lots of things that are get get passed as legislation, there's also lots of things that happen in Israel just based on, uh, you know, a directive issued by a minister. In general, there's um, definitely expectations that things are going to change. At the same time, there are um, those mitigating forces sort of within the Likud. Um, and also in general within the Israeli public, um, there's always concerns about um, uh, what's called in Hebrew kfiadatit, sort of religious co coercion that people are forced to abide by different religious rulings. If these uh, parties go sort of too far in terms of imposing religion on people who don't want it, um, they could potentially see some public pushback on that. Um, and that's something that they'll have to sort of navigate. Um, but in general, it's going to be interesting to see the Likud, which has traditionally sort of gone along with the um, religious parties, now suddenly have to be the more mitigating force, um, which is something that it's not necessarily used to. And, uh, you know, it'll, we'll just have to see sort of how it does in that role.
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Thanks for that, Judah. And Danielle, let's talk hotels. What is happening on that front right now? What are we seeing? Who are we seeing entering the market? So I think we're definitively post-COVID now. And what we're seeing is Israel's hotel industry start to respond to the challenge that the tourism ministry has thrown down to grow Israel's tourist base from around 4 million visitors a year pre-COVID to 10 million visitors a year. This is seen as an area of the economy that can easily be expanded. And the idea is to make Israel a real destination for global tourism. So we're seeing that play out in a number of ways. We've got Uh, developments, for example, in Tel Aviv and at the Dead Sea, which aim to pretty much double the number of hotel rooms in in those regions over the next couple of years. And the tenders for the Dead Sea resort include an expansion of the resort along the coast, uh, new spaces for hotels, new types of hotels and so forth. But we're also hearing from Israel's leading hotel players that they feel some things about the market have changed irrevocably as a result of COVID. During COVID, they were forced to rely on internal tourism a lot. That used to be 30% of the market for Israeli hotels. It went up to sort of 70, 80, 90% during COVID. And even now, the main players in the hotel industry believe that it's important to continue to woo Israeli tourists as well as tourists from outside. They're also recognizing that it's no longer enough to give someone just a bed and a great Israeli breakfast, which was the standard offer from hotels before. Partly that's because uh, people are looking for different things from hotels. Partly it's because in the last couple of years, Airbnb, Booking.com and Zimmers have multiplied. And if people just want to go away to an area and feed themselves, they can. There are lots of short-term rental options. So a hotel has to offer something more than that. And what they seem to be focusing on is the idea of unique experiences. So for example, you go away to a Dan hotel in Sfat and you'll be offered wine tasting and you'll be offered guided walking tours of the area and you'll be offered entertainment. And unsurprisingly, there's a lot of focus on the environment and going green and creating hotel restaurants which work with local chefs, which work with local suppliers, which are embedded in nature and help people to get closer to those spaces. And there's also increased emphasis on going what I'd call super luxe. So if you can get a good night away in an Airbnb, you go to a hotel because it offers the best mattress, the best pillow, the thoughtful environment that you can spend time in over the course of a couple of days, the the, the unique spa treatments. What we're seeing in Israel is not only new hotels being built, but also existing hotels being given a complete makeover to try to attract the tourist of today and of tomorrow rather than the tourists of the past. Thank you very much, Danielle. Thank you, Judah, for being with us on today's Daily Briefing. We'll, of course, be back tomorrow. In the meantime... Have yourselves a good day. Thanks, Jessica. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell. 
released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.